Good afternoon. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the second lecture in this year's two-part uh, Reichauer Lectures at the Fairbank Center, Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, uh, with the generous co-sponsorship of the Harvard University Asia Center, the Korea Institute, the Mittal South Asia Institute, and the Reichauer Institute of Japanese Studies. I'm Michael Sony, director of the Fairbank Center, and it's my uh, honor and pleasure to preside over today's event. Uh, it is, uh, I'm especially pleased to see so many of you here today. It is, of course, another extraordinarily beautiful autumn day outside. Uh, as the poet said, uh, <laughs> the, the frosted leaves are even redder than the flowers of spring, even more beautiful than the flowers of spring. This poem, I, I take it you all know, of course, comes not from Dufu, uh, of whom we've heard so much yesterday, and we'll hear some more tomorrow, but from, or later today, but, but from his slightly later contemporary Dumu, also known as Little Du, and perhaps also as Du II, um, which means, of course, that in France, he must be known as just another Tang Du De. That's triglossy, Steve. Or, sorry? Or do two. All right, so we're up at Triglossia. We shall see if we, can, if, we can, if we can raise the stakes even higher for the rest of the day. Um, for those of you who, who, uh, who joined us yesterday, you know that we are in for uh, a real treat uh, this afternoon. And for those of you who are here for the first time, prepare to be uh, um, uh, diverted and overwhelmed with erudition and interest. Uh, I formally introduced Professor Owen at yesterday's uh, lecture. I'm not going to do that again today. Um, I imagine that he's well known to most of you in any case. So I'll, go, I'll, I'll today simply uh, uh, make a few remarks about uh, our discussion today, Professor Stephen West. Stephen West is Foundation Professor of Chinese in the School of International Letters and Cultures at Arizona State University, and Louis Agassiz Professor of Chinese Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. He works in the textual culture of late medieval and early modern China in such areas as performance literature, drama, urban literature, and garden studies. Like our presenter, and like yesterday's discussant, Michael Pewitt, Professor West boasts an impressive publication record of books, articles, and translations that span the breadth of medieval Chinese literature. He has a direct connection uh, to the Fairbanks Center through a number of co-authored works with our former director uh, and colleague, Wilt Edema. His latest book with Professor Edema moves beyond uh, the medieval period to look at a far more illustrious dynasty, ghosts, demons, and monsters, Ming court plays on the supernatural. We're very thrilled to, I can see my, my constant efforts to boost the Ming are becoming, <laughs> are becoming tiresome to the Fairbank Center audience, uh, point taken. We are thrilled uh, to have Professor West join us today from Arizona to add his expertise as discussant today's lecture, to today's lecture. Once again, please join me in uh, welcoming Professor West and welcoming back Steve Owen. Okay. Uh, let me begin today's thing by just trying to give you the probably the basic issue we'll be talking about. If you do a lot of Chinese art theory, you realize that China was obsessed with spontaneity. And I say art theory, including literary theory, whatever. 
in the theory of the arts. And it seems if you read Chinese art theory or Chinese poetics, they never really made that leap, which the Germans made and then hence Europe made in the late 18th century, which was Schiller's naive and sentimental poetry, which is the notion that when nature disappears as a fact, it reappears as an idea. Or, more dangerously, when nature appears as an idea, it disappears as a fact. In other words, in simple terms, you cannot value spontaneity and be spontaneous. It's just not possible. You can't say, I want to be spontaneous. Any more than you can say, please paint me a spontaneous painting. <laughs> and that, of course, is the heart of the matter today. The Chinese tried to solve this problem with a theory of second nature, that if you just practice long enough, you'll forget. But the horrible truth is, you never forget. <laughs> you can't once you said it, right? But then I realized as I was reading this, that when even though it was never, you could never present that notion as a fact, a claim, it was actually there as an assumption. The people knew it. And you could count on people understanding that, even though you couldn't say it. Now today, I'm going to concentrate on a single essay by Su Dong Po, I'll figure it, remind you, 1037 to 1101. It's called An Account of Wan Tung's Painting of the Recumbent Bamboo in Yundang Valley. Uh, I, it's fair to say that from the Song Dynasty on, uh, in, in East Asia, there's hardly any Chinese intellectual who studied so widely. This is for the general, that Su Po is not just simply a Chinese writer. He really belongs to East Asia, if anyone does. Um, the only probably, his only competitor is Zhu Xi. Now it's well known that Zhu Xi did not like Su Po. And I'm really certain that if Su, you know, Su Po had still been alive, he would not have liked Zhu Xi. So this presents a significant choice in East Asia. Are you, do you belong to the Zhu Xi camp, or do you belong to the Su Po camp? And we'll see how that plays out. Um, yesterday's lecture was, in large measure, tracing the history through which this particular text could happen. This text is a model of how cultures may deal with conflicting values and different judge judgments, different versions of truth. Rather than reconciling the two, or rather than, you know, sort of passing judgment on which is correct, both seem to be left standing side by side. With the classical truth still canonized, and the subversive alternative that seems to be taken for granted, always taken for granted. It's as if you said, I believe the world is flat, but when we're flying, we'd probably better not assume that, <laughs> right? So you live in a world where you actually live believing the world is round, but you always say it's flat. <laughs> and this all also started when I was reading, uh, teaching Hellenistic and early Roman Hellenistic literature before and moral literature class. And there's a certain moment around the turn of the, you know, the Roman, the Christian era, when a young person would definitely go to school and study Homer. 
And when he got out of school, he might go to listen to Callimachus being recited. And they all sound very ancient. If you know your ancient Greek, they sound like ancient Greek should go. But when the kid went home, he picked up a novel, which sounds all the world like a 19th century sensational novel. It's a totally different vision of representation of how the world works. It sees space differently. It sees relationships differently. And you wonder, how can you live in those two worlds? They're just not compatible. But they did somehow. Right? Now, the foil for this talk, and I really have to apologize every time I say it, is bam the bamboo and the brass is taken from both Sucher's essay, but it's also part of the title, of an article by Michael Fuller, published in Harvard Journal of Asiatic Studies in 1993, which the full title is Pursuing the Complete Bamboo in the Breast, Reflections on a Classical Chinese Image for Immediacy. I'm using Fuller's article as a foil for my, my own. I have no way criticizing him. He's doing what we often do. We take claims and treat them as intellectual history, and it helps understand what's going on in literature. But it is basically intellectual history rather than literary studies. The article highlights the emergence of immediacy as a value, but leaves out the complications, the complications which the contemporaries were fully aware. The passage appears as the first part of Suchar's essay, has a reasonably clear point. We can take it away and summarize what Suchar said. That's what he said. That's what Wontung said. This is what he thought about it. Right? It's the source of the Chinese Changyu, Shengyo Changju. There's a bamboo in the breast. But the whole rest of this essay is filled with joking comments and poems exchanged between the two people, between Sudenpo and Wontung. Scholars generally, as what they do when it gets funny, generally avoid this part of the essay. They only quote the good part and leave the jokes out. But when you start reading this, you realize that, in fact, a great deal is, a great deal is at stake in the joking. It makes no grand claims, as the first part does, but it takes certain things for granted that undermine what's said in the first part. Let me... Yeah, okay. And this is how can you say, say the unprecedented. You can't say it as a claim. You might be able to say it as an assumption. Here's the first part. Um, in the autumn of seven, 1075, Sucher carried out his annual ritual of oh, 1709. Excuse me. How did it get 1075? 1079. Sucher was carrying out the annual ritual of drying his books and paintings in autumn, getting rid of summer moisture in preparation for winter so that they didn't get moldy. Right? Among the paintings he unrolled was an ink bamboo, a moju, by Wontung, one of Sucher's dearest, dearest friends, who had passed away earlier that same year. It was a moment when one of the paintings in his collection ceased to be just a painting. It was a focus of memory, which led him to write this account of the Wontung's painting of the recumbent bamboo of Yundang Valley. <coughs> now, the first part is what we described as the classical moment in yesterday's lecture. 
an impersonal statement of a general truth. When a bamboo is first born, it is just a sprout of an inch. Yet the segments and leaves are complete in it. Going from a cicada or snake molding to reach up ten yards like a sword held upright is something that has from birth. Nowadays, painters do it segment by segment and burn it with leaf after leaf. How can there still be a bamboo? Now, Sudung Po invokes neither the ideal of a fully grown bamboo nor the mimesis, the imitation of any particular bamboo in the world, but rather the embryonic, the bamboo is an embryonic organism with a propensity, the sure, to grow and extend. And here you need to know what I put, a little note I put at the bottom here, that if the sugars, if the bamboo is in the mind and it's only an inch long, the capacity of the mind is exactly one inch. So the mind is really full of bamboo, completely. Okay. Now, the inch of a whole bamboo in its embryonic stage, with the propensity to grow, fits ex literally fits exactly into the mind. It's already complete, but it will grow. Indeed, it can reach astounding heights. It's easy to paint the static idea of bamboo or any particular bamboo. But how do you paint an organism? How can you paint something whose very nature is to grow? The temporality of the act of painting has to encode somehow the temporality of growth. No matter how taxonomically perfect, the representation cannot be done segment by segment. That's not how it grows. Every part grows together as a whole. If it was leaf after leaf, it would be a stasis that would betray what the bamboo is. So rather is to catch the bamboo in process. What follows is the most famous part of the essay, often quoted, a simile for the act of painting. And I'll give you Fuller's translation here. Thus, to paint bamboo, one must first obtain a complete one in one's breast. One grasps the brush and looks thoroughly. Then, when one has seen what one wants to paint, one rises rapidly to follow it, moving the brush in direct pursuit to close upon what one has seen. It's like a rabbit starting as a hawk dives. A little looseness of concentration, and the rabbit gets away. Thus one tongue instructed me. Though I knew the nature of bamboo, or I think rather I knew this was so, I couldn't convey it to paper. Now when one knows an object's nature, but cannot achieve the true effect, inner and outer are not one. The mind and the hand are not mutually responsive. This is the result of not studying. If one is not well practiced in grasping whatever one has noted within, what one would ordinarily fully comprehends will suddenly be lost at the critical moment. This is that moment of spontaneity, right? And if you happen to want to do it, you can't do it. Okay? You all know the story of Jing Ke, right? About to kill Qin Shi Huang. And he stops. Uh, and he hesitates one moment, and then he's killed. And as he's dying, he says, it was all because I wanted to follow the example of the first of the assassins in the series, that I didn't finish him off right then and there. I wanted to take him hostage. 
you get that moment of hesitation when you can't just do it is fatal. Right? This is a striking passage. It illustrates the 11th century interest in spontaneity, or in Foley's better term, immediacy. It's an easy, comfortable argument. Everybody loves this argument. It makes everybody feel good, warm, <laughs> fuzzy. Uh, it's predictably profound, and the majority of those who comment on the piece go no further than this passage. It is serious, or pretends to be. Much of the rest of the essay is joking. Jokes between Sudungpo and Wontong. And most people ignore what happens after this. The disposition of the literary scholars who notice those texts with particular links and homologies, but which do not belong to a single clearly argued point. Now, when I read an essay that begins with bamboo growing and coming out on paper, and I read at the end of that essay of Wontong spitting out the bamboo he's eating all over the table, I know that Sushir is up to something strange here. And if you missed why he ends up spitting out the bamboo on the table, you've missed the first part where he spits the bamboo out on the paper. Um, you're missing the fun. There's something wrong here with the authoritative lesson offering a reflective knowledge of mastery that is not at all characteristic of one tongue in the rest of the essay. There's something wrong with a lesson that Sudung Po can understand immediately, but not be able to do. Uh, it suggests a wheelwright bien problem. You all know wheelwright bien, and I will, if I don't know it, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I'll quote you Burton Watson's translation. Duke Juan was in his hall reading a book. Wheelwright bien, maybe piano bien, nobody knows, who was in the yard below chiseling a wheel, laid down his mallet and chisel and stepped up into the hall and said to Duke Juan, this book you're reading is, is reading, may I venture to ask whose words are in it? The words of the sages, said the Duke. Are the sages still alive? Dead long ago, said the Duke. In that case, what you're reading is nothing but the chaff and dregs of the men of old. Since when does a wheelwright have permission to comment on the books I read, said Duke Juan. If you have some explanation, well and good. If not, it's your life. Wheelwright Pien said, well, I look at it from the point of view of my own work. When I chisel a wheel, if the blows of the mallet are too gentle, the side chisel slides and won't take hold. If they're too hard, it bites in and won't budge. <coughs> not too gentle, not too hard. You can get it in your hand and feel it in your mind. You can't put it into words. And yet there's a knack to it somehow. I can't teach it to my son. He can't learn it from me, nor can Wantong teach it to Sudong Po, nor can Sudong Po learn it from Wantong. So I've gone on along for 70 years. At my age, I'm still chiseling wheels. Where the men of old died, they took with them the things that could be, couldn't be handed down. So what you're reading there, it must be nothing but the chaff and drags of the men of old. The wheelwright man is quite clear that he himself can know how to do it, but can't teach it to them. But the discourse on the act of painting is presented as one tongue's lesson to Sudung Po, precisely about the same kind of knowledge. This is indeed a theory of painting, 
And although it's presented as one tongue's lesson, it's hard to see in its Sudong Po's later representation of one tongue as a painter of bamboo. Indeed, it's hard to even see it as immediacy. The painter is the hunting hawk. The image of the bamboo is the wily rabbit. At the exact moment the hunter frames the image of the prey, it strikes. I can't help notice that it's going after a rabbit. And what do you do with rabbits besides eating them? You take their hair out and you make good brushes to paint ink bamboo with. It all goes together. It troubles me that the bamboo is an organic growing thing with an innate tendency, sure, to grow and extend. But paint, his, the story of painting here involves the metaphor of killing something dead. Just as Zhuang's analogical metaphor is hunting and killing. The metaphor which we saw yesterday, which Zhuang's abandons his final comment on meaning. The interior image in the mind can become the exterior painting. But the mediating mind is one of disciplined concentration that catches the moment when the external painting and the mind are one. Su Xu accepts the lesson, but confesses, I can't do it, I'm sorry. As it says, like Jing Ke, the only way Su Xu believes he can repair the failure is through study. Looking for the breakthrough when the educated mind and the hand work together, and that becomes second nature. This was an old motif dating back to the Analects, you know, Confucius at 70, does what he wants to do and doesn't transgress what's right. But it's always a problematic solution, notional rather than real. My brother, Zio Su Che, wrote an expo poetic exposition on ink painting of bamboo and sent it to one talk. It said, Butcher Ding was someone who cut apart oxen, yet those who could nurture life learned something from him. Wheel Ripe Gam was someone who cut wheels, yet the one who was reading agreed with him. You, sir, have invested this kind of idea in these bamboo. Yet would anyone disagree if I think that you possess the way? Zio never practiced painting. He simply got the idea. As for my myself, I didn't just get the idea. I got the method for painting, even though I can't do it. <laughs> now, um, Here's the example of Wheel Ride Bien, which contradicts the possibility of the master teaching his skill to anyone. With the same phrase Zhuangzi used for getting the meaning, Su Che seems to have grasped some larger principle. But normally, the Chinese would first build Sepharism. He would say, I just got the fa, the method for painting, but Su Che I mean, got the whole idea for the way. He doesn't say that. He says, Su Chu got the idea for the way, but I didn't just get the idea for the way. I got the method for painting. And something's going wrong here, something very strange. At some point in this essay, you realize everything has become a hopeless muddle. And the source of the muddle is the paradox of intuitive immediacy or spontaneity. One tongue has tried to transmit it to student Po in words, the essence of his talent in bamboo painting. The wheelwright Bien's terms, this can be only the dregs of his talent, which ultimately cannot be transmitted. Sudung Po has already discovered this truth because he's, like, because he's understood the idea. He even calls it a method, a fa, which means something one can learn and apply. But you can't learn and apply this. Susher can't apply it. He can't do it right. 
He imagines if he studies hard enough, the mind and hand will be one. But he really knows this is impossible. That is, Sudung Po is winking at us. Perhaps he's even putting us on. He's been using the high rhetoric of art theory and the great issues of the day, and the intellectual historians take the, take the bait. But all of a sudden, he drops that discourse entirely. He doesn't talk about this anymore in the rest of the essay. Instead, he turns to a different way of talking about painting, which I think it can easily be argued is unique, doesn't happen until the Song Dynasty. If about the first part you could trace the story back to Zhuangzi and back to you know, Confucius at 70, what's happening in the last part of the essay is only Song. Okay. And that's this. At first, when Wan Tung painted bamboo, he didn't take what he was doing seriously. People carrying plain silk came from every direction to ask for a painting. And would line up toe to heel at his gate. Wan Tung was sick of this and threw his paintings on the ground, cursing, I'm going to make socks out of these. Gentlemen passed this around as a good anecdote. Welcome to the Song Dynasty. <laughs> Instead of Wan Tung, the theorist who teaches others to paint bamboo, he was, here we see Wan Tung, the first great master of ink bamboo, as a doodler. He doesn't take it seriously. He doesn't value it. Since he doesn't value it, he actually can be spontaneous. Right? Playing. He's not valuing what he's doing. Buzi, Gui Zhong. That would be the, really the condition of the truly spontaneous, unselfconscious artist. If he valued unselfconsciousness, if he tried to be unselfconscious, whatever that might mean, then he himself would not be unselfconscious. The appreciation of unselfconscious, the unselfconscious artist, comes from the outside. It comes from the social world, the gentry. Aesthetic judgment, wow, I love, you know, one tongue's paintings of bamboo, they're great. Becomes social value. They're great. Everybody's saying, yes, they're great. And very quickly that becomes commercial value. You can't get away from it. If the artist finds himself in such a social world, he very quickly ceases to be unselfconscious. You, I think, figure it out when you have all these people lined up saying, paint me a spontaneous painting. <coughs> and he finds, I can't do a spontaneous painting anymore, no matter how hard he tries, because he's trying to paint a spontaneous painting. <coughs> he, there's no escape. And the great the comic scene of the gentry connoisseurs of painting lining up toe to heel, carrying white silk, which is both the medium of painting and the extra silk, of course, is payment for the painting. You can't talk about giving money for a painting, but what you do is you bring a lot of silk, and he paints one part of the silk, and cuts off the rest, and he's getting hard cash. You can pay the artist without seeming to pay him. It's both comic and pathetic. The artist cannot escape this social gaze. We have a queue of gentry, each of whom someone demands a spontaneous painting of bamboo. Wan Tung tries to break free. He gets mad. 
he throws a fit, throws a silk on the ground, and vows to make socks with his paintings. The socks are, of course, something with use value, but no aesthetic value. The smelly bamboo. But there's no escape. As soon as he does this, the gentry say, ho, ho, look how eccentric he is. What a spontaneous genius. And they all tell each other. And the poor guy cannot go back to just doodling ever again. He's trapped because of money, because of public values. Okay. I won't go through every detail of the text, but one to finally finds a means to escape being a master. Right. He has to do the strategies and terms that gentry understand. And the only way a master can stop being a master is to pass the art on to somebody else. And guess who it gets passed on to? Sudong Paul, who actually may be able to still paint art bamboo and live with the fact everybody's looking at him. The new master of ink painting is Sudong Paul. Even though Su Dung Po quite well admits that he doesn't know how to do it. But it's publicly believed that he does. After that, the rest of the essay turns to bantering exchange of jokes and teasing between Su Dung Po and Wan Tong. Joking puts off serious scholars. And this part of the account rarely receives any retention. But this banter often suggests that there's something on a writer's mind that you can't address any other way except by joking about it. And he asks the, the case, this, this case, the issue that's entered the, the equation is commercialism, which hangs directly on the margin between the bamboo and the mind and the bamboo on silk. Once the bamboo and the mind gets to become the bamboo on silk, it's worth money. The bamboo begins as a, the, actually the analogy here is between bamboo and capital. I think it's a really good analogy. Bamboo begins as a tiny inch-long sprout on the ground or in the mine, but has a propensity, sure, to keep growing and increasing, spreading. You've ever grown bamboo, you know what you're getting. Right? It goes all over the yard, grows higher and higher, just bamboo grows. Uh, one tongue imagines painting of such a super bamboo. Sudung Po thinks of the material medium of representation, the silk, whose increase in size is also an increase in the money value of the medium, the silk. At the end of the letter, one tongue copy out a poem that said an excerpt, I plan to take a piece of Goose, Greek, Goose Creek silk and sweep forth wintry stalks 10,000 feet long. I told one tongue, if you're going to have bamboo 10,000 feet tall, you're going to need 250 bolts of silk. I realize that you're going to wear yourself out with brush and inkstone simply from your desire to get so much silk. Greedy man. One tongue says, I'm the artist. I believe in the imagination. Sushis, now you're down. You want money. <laughs> Bigger the bamboo, the more silk you get. Uh, so one tongue, the doodler, dreams of super bamboo a vision of increase from that inch-long sprout. But in the newly reintroduced regime of commercialism, the magnitude can be simply a measure for the requisite silk. In Sudung Po's teasing comment, the doodler, 
becomes a piecework laborer, working himself from rags to riches. You all know every culture has the story of the guys given some small thing, like a little, I think the Indian version has a piece of dog, you know, some sort of filth. And he manages to turn that into a huge body of money at the end and becomes a rich man. Well, the artist dream becomes the capitalist dream. The two friends, older and younger, have descended, descended into witty banter. But Sudung Po was the unchallenged wit of the age and the master of banter. And Wan Tung doesn't know how to answer this suggestion of Su Shen. Since Wan Tung couldn't make a good retort, I, he said, I was wrong. How could there ever be bamboo 10,000 feet tall? I followed up on this and offered a concrete example. Answering his poem, in this world there are indeed bamboo a thousand yards tall. When the moon sets in the empty courtyard, the shadows are just that long. One took a laugh and said, Sudo Paul could really make a witty case. Still, with 250 bolts of silk, I could buy fields and retire. Then he sent me the recumbent bamboo of Yundang Valley that he had painted, commenting, these bamboo are just several feet long, but they had the propensity to become 10,000 feet tall. No one is supposed to be thinking about money. This is not proper for a gentleman. But one does not have to read far long and look in northern, far long in northern Tsung texts to realize that everybody is thinking about money all over the place. They didn't do that in the Tang very much, but in the Song Dynasty, one has repeatedly reads accounts of owned land, how much you paid for it. I can only think of one example in the whole Tang Dynasty where you're told how much you paid for land. Sudung Po has infected the discourse not with wealth, but with fantasies of wealth. This sets Wan Tung thinking. Susher wants to demonstrate his cleverness, as he always does, and he gives Wan Tung an example of how there can indeed be a bamboo uh, that as tall as Wan Tung imagines. And this is figure, by the way, of imagining the bamboo in the moonlight growing in the courtyard is the uncannily like ink painting of bamboo. It's the black shadow on the white ground. This is the propensity, the sure of bamboo, to grow tall. And Wan Tung's disavowal of his fantasy of increase collapses before Su Dung Po's affirmation. At this point, Wan Tung starts thinking, you know, I might be able to make enough money with my painting to buy myself a retirement home. Hmm. Wan Tung, the one-term doodler, is now brought up into a fantasy of 250 bolts of silk and the possibility of buying a retirement home. This is the Song Dynasty. The elite disdain commerce, profess lofty ideals, but the realities of commerce and economic life were very much on their minds and crept in around the edges, especially when they were con contemplating retirement. I will tell you that is the case. <laughs> in the next, his next poem, Su Dung Po will grow Wan Tung's imaginary capital even farther. Then you can earn from painting fabulous wealth. This will horrify all Chinese scholars who study that most aesthetically noble form of literary art, the ink bamboo. <coughs> But let it be said that this famous text, bamboo is the counterpart of capital, beginning small, 
the inch that fits in the square inch of the painter's mind, with the propensity to grow to 10,000 feet. It is the very Warren Buffett of bamboo. <laughs> and this term propensity is also the identical term for a quality of brushwork. The brushwork has a sure propensity. The master painter somehow invests a, that propensity in the representation. The small bamboo of Yundang Valley had that propensity within them. Yundang Valley is in Yangzhou, not the famous Yangzhou, but another Yangzhou. And he commissioned me to write 30 verses on Yangzhou, one of which was to be on Yundang Valley. My poem went, the tall bamboos of the river Han are cheap as dandelions. Whenever did the hatchet spare these sheathed dragons and his bamboo shoots? I reckon these feed the governor in his austere poverty, but a thousand acres of the, by the way's shore in his breast. On that day, Wontung was visiting the valley with his wife, and they were roasting bamboo shoots for their evening meal. When he opened the letter packet and found this poem, he was so overcome by laughter that he spread out his food all over the table. So here the bamboo in the mind becomes the bamboo on the table, on the belly, and then the bamboo on the spit out on the table. But what he's laughing at, of course, is the reference to the bamboo, a thousand acres by way, way, the Way River shores. It's in the Treatise of Commerce and Shoji, speak of a thousand acres of bamboo by the Way River, company that anyone who has that, owns that much bamboo, is the counterpart of an account with the income from a thousand households. So this is really growing the bamboo to, you know, the, the painted bamboo, and the income from painted bamboo to a vast amount of money. Okay. The noble bamboo was a signifying plant, as you probably know. An image, it's an image invited contemplation. It was referred to poetically as Tzu Jun, this gentleman. It was famous for its integrity, its jie, its joints, for its perseverance, staying green through the winter. The bamboo was all these good, noble things for Shu Daifu, you know. It's also a good vegetable when it's young. <laughs> It's difficult to explain a 10,000-year-old joke, but the Sussur's poem actually is very funny. It was the image of the Confucian, you know, um, the question of commercial value is part of the joke. Jian, translated as cheap, is also jianmin. It's also low-born, right? It's the very opposite of bamboo as sejun is not jian, cheap. Does this growth of the base and cheap sprout into the super bamboo have anything to do with social mobility as well as capital, the transformation of jian to gui? The opening bamboo in the breast of the artist is here becomes a veritable bamboo plantation in the breast, providing the artist with income of a great lord. At first, we may not know why they're being cut indiscriminately with a indiscriminately with a hatchet. The bamboo has many uses. Uh, but when you see sheathed dragons, you know what it is. These are the purple sheaths on bamboo sprouts, bamboo shoots. Dragons can contract into something very small, but can extend into something huge and grand. 
just as the bamboo begins as an inch-long sprout, but can grow in the imagination to 10,000 feet. When they're still shoots, they have purpley sheaths, they're shed as the bamboo grows. The governor, one tongue, lives in noble poverty, eats cheap bamboo shoots, but he's dreaming of wealth. He has bamboo in his breast, as well as his belly. Indeed, he has the 10,000 acres of bamboo by the Way River. And so, roughly speaking, you'll live in poverty, eating the cheapest and most humble of foods, but in your heart are the bamboo, which are both the dream of wealth and the dream that actually grows into paintings which will provide you that kind of income. Susher's poem, by chance, reaches Wontong at the very moment he's having a picnic in Yundang Valley eating bamboo shoots. I think the Chinese term here is clearly chow. You know, this is the incredibly inner deus ex machina, the moment when the, bamboo, the two bamboo come together. Ah. Our essay begins with bamboo shoots in the breast and comes at last to bamboo shoots in the stomach. The former of the bamboo and the shoots in the breast grow to maturity in exactly the right moment emerges through the hand of the artist, the unselfconscious doodler. The bamboo of, of, on silk are valuable and bring a stream of seekers bearing silk. The roasted bamboo shoots in the stomach are disgorged into the picnic table with no less unselfconsciousness. I think you can say that when you throw up bamboo shoots, it's not by intention, but rather by natural, spontaneous <laughs> action, right? The first part of a lesson, um, how are we to make of this, rather? As grand as the first part Ed, is with its embedded Chengyu, it's hard not to feel that the grand theory of art has been somehow superseded by the homier truth of the latter part. This first part was a lesson. The master told me about bamboo, what you painting bamboo, what you have to do. As I said yesterday, it is for all people good, but it's a word of a master who is not going to change his mind. It's good for all people at all time. Then it goes immediately to the particular case of him in relation to one tongue and how different that is. Uh, his words keep coming, apparently frivolous joking, yet those who keep on reading get something richer. Rather than the question of immediacy in the opening passage, we see its impossibility. We first see one tongue as a doodler. With pure unselfconsciousness, there's no sense of value in either the unselfconsciousness itself or in the act of painting. It's just, I can do it because I like to. I'm barely thinking about it. This is Picasso's table scribbles, you know. But already we're in that age of that value, the age that values immediacy. And whether one tongue likes it or not, he's trapped. He's no longer has. Aesthetic value has become a social value, which becomes commercial value, and we have a scene in which a long line of entry all come to one tongue demanding that he paint something spontaneous. And that is a paradox that can never be resolved. And we also see that this social power cannot be escaped, except by saying, I've given up my mantle, you know, I'm the patriarch and I'm quitting, and handing the mantle on to Sudong Po. And all this is set in an odd context of death and remembrance. On the 20th day of the first month of the second year of the Yuanfeng reign, Wan Tung passed away in Chenzhou. On the seventh day of the seventh month that year, I was in Huzhou, 
and was airing my books and paintings. When I saw these bamboo, I put aside the scroll, choked up with tears. Long ago, Cao Cao's sacrificial address to Chao Xuan used the phrase, as my carriage passed, I felt a pain in the belly. At those playful words I wrote earlier for Wen Tong, show my feeling a perfect closeness to him. We come at last to the occasion of writing, the autumn airing of his scrolls. He hadn't been originally thinking of Wen Tong at all. But seeing the painting reminded him of his very dear friend who had passed away earlier that year. The painting is a trace of a moment in their long relationship, a story he wants to tell. It's a trace that leads to a memory of laughter. But the death of the person who shared that laughter changes it, but doesn't extinguish the laughter. And in giving us the history behind the painting, we see it as more than an aesthetic object, as a, a trophy of the first famous painter of Moju, but rather something that matters to him. As Chinese writers so often did, he looks for a past example through which to understand his situation. Perhaps only Su Lung Po would dare compare himself to Cao Cao. <laughs> you know, I think of Cao Cao. Am I like Cao Cao? Cao Cao was a great warlord, of course, and Chao Xuan was the man who first recognized him. And Cao Cao was, after Chao Xuan passed away, Cao Cao was passing his tomb, engaged in pleasantries. But a few paces after he passed the tomb, he started weeping, had a pain in the belly and started weeping. And we can't forget about bamboo shoots in one tongue's belly. There's a lot of stomach in here, a lot of viscerality. We might reflect on the nature of knowledge embodied in literary text. It's clearly not the kind of knowledge offered in Wontung's lesson about knowing how to paint bamboo, knowing the moment to strike. That sounds for all the world like the first part of the drawings, you know, meaning. Perhaps the best way to approach it is the knowledge that you must presume in a reader in order for him to make sense of the passage and to see the humor of the jokes. Now, you don't get it if you don't know better. This is a special kind of historical knowledge in which we suddenly realize they know what we know. (coughs) We know about the the issue of commerce. We know the social gaze, how deeply implicated value is in commercial value. And they knew it too. They'll never write about it as an idea. But they know it's there. They can tell you because you need to do know that to know why it's funny. So let me step back and offer a brief reflection on the process. We started out with a standard Chinese studies reading of the essay. The nature of knowledge implied within the text is also the nature of knowledge assumed in the discussion. It requires an authoritative master to tell you how to paint bamboo. Here's my lesson on how to paint bamboo. It will not change. You know, you can't say later on one tongue changed his mind and said, no, that wasn't how to paint bamboo at all. It has to be, this is his opinion after long reflection. 
One tongue's authoritative lesson on bamboo, painting bamboo, is a variation on conventional values. In the background is the assumption of a long phase of practice after which mastery is achieved. That mastery justifies the lesson given to Sudhupo. There's no hint that such mastery will evolve further. The stage of mastery involves the eternal, internalization of value to the degree that action is pre-reflective. Such a notion of final pre-reflective knowledge does need to have a very long tradition in China. It can be taught as traditional Chinese values. You know, what are traditional Chinese values? And of course, these are the values you can trace back to antiquity. And they'll never lose that. It's as satisfying as such. But the two are mutually dependent, perhaps, the two halves. It's important to realize that this image of one tongue cannot be reconciled with the one tongue in the second half of the essay. In the second half of the essay, one tongue first doesn't know what he's doing, and second is so frustrated he wants to get rid of stop doing it. And that moment of mastery when you can give a lesson on how to paint bamboo, there's no time for that. There's no interval for that. The second part of the essay has only immediately from going from immediacy and innocence to loss of innocence. Okay? He's helpless in face of the social forces that treat him as a master. In the first version, one tongue of, of one tongue, Sudung Po can understand but not live up to the teaching of the master. In the second version, Sudung Po easily undertakes one tongue's unwilling role as master of ink baiting and bamboo. Flustered, worried about retirement, there's nothing in the second version of one tongue that offers a lesson in the standard values. You know, you can't teach that as Chinese values. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, the second version of one tongue is someone we can all recognize, just as Sudung Po took for granted that his readers could recognize such a person. And to, to reach a representation of that fallible human being, Sudungpo has to go through a standard values to show something beyond them. That is, these two phases, the first phase, the standard Chinese values, and the second phase, seem to need each other. They, without the second phase, the first phase becomes hollow eventually. And without the first phase, the second phase loses its you know, sort of aura, which it lends to the second phase. The standard values are not false, they're just incomplete. And thank you, that's my message for the day. And now I will turn the floor over to... I thought I would name my talk. <laughs> well, this is a hard thing to do, is to follow both Steve and Michael. Um, I'd first uh, very much like to thank the organizers of this wonderful lecture series for the invitation, and Steve for the invitation uh, to be a discussant. Um, I don't see this really as a lecture, but more of a manifesto for us who are in the field or shortly will have been in the field. And I'm extremely happy because I've been waiting 45 years for this opportunity to get to say something about Steve's work. <laughs> and um, 
the kind of light that's always held up to me as being a kind of prodigious output of subtle and very entrancing work indeed. Um, <clears throat> the reading of the essay is just absolutely wonderful, so there was very little for me left to do in that respect. But it really started to challenge me about how I think about that essay and how I think about Sung prose in general. And it happens to be at a perfect time because I've been reading all of the incidental prose written between the Yuanyo partisans who had been exiled to the south, Wang Tingjian, uh, Su Shi, Qingguan, etc. And one finds in these essays, which do not become part of things like Guang Guanzhi, uh, a lot of interesting uh, asides about what life is like for these guys. The essay itself is a really excellent example of what I call a kind of ratatouille style that appears in Song and much later prose, where there is always seems to be this kind of fundamental incommensurability between uh, sections in terms of the styles that are adopted or used. In this case, what I found interesting is we have um, a text composed of two separate discursive elements, which Steve has named authoritative for the first, and the second, which he has left unnamed, but I'm going to call it demonstrative, because this is what Sushir does in the second part of this text, I think, is to demonstrate spontaneity. These are followed then by a third section, a textual coda that turns out to be a prelude in both thought and action. The actual unrolling of the scroll comes late in the text. So first we have Su and Wen's discourses on painting and bamboo. Second, a series of humorous exchanges, jokes between Su Dengfu and Wen Tong. And then third, this moment that began the whole episode, the viewing of his dead friend's painting. Since we tend to read in the same way, uh, we read through text in the same way that we listen to music, that is, through time, it is only at the end that we're often asked to reconcile what we have read through time into a kind of, or heard into an organic whole, something um, that hangs together as a, a spontaneous remembrance of the text itself, not as a series of readings, but as a whole, a structure. So in this case, we have held essentially in suspension two fundamentally different texts seemingly bound together here only by a tenuous and somewhat capricious link between two personalities. Our normal order of reading, which is based on a syntax of how logic unfolds through time, is frustrated. It is only when we come to the stage scene at the end that we realize this has all been but a flash of nostalgia and remembrance, an evanescent space of memory that the text hopes to capture as a totality. Now, for me, the formal beginning of the essay, is this going to work? No. The formal beginning of the essay is remarkable for its visuality, calling to mind both the belly of the cicada, whether newly emergent or grown, and the ventral scales of a snake. But, so we can see in this way, this kind of, it's an incredibly visual thing, which we probably have lost because we don't go wandering around outside much anymore. 
But there is also something in these opening lines, I think, that really bolsters Steve's claims. If we take a further look at these lines here and maybe recast them a bit, everything from the belly of a cicada and eventual scales of a snake all the way to the plucking up of a sword to a height of 10,000 feet is something that was there from birth and in its growth life. So not Sheng is not just the birth itself, but the way that it, it grows to maturity over time. Um, we are introduced here, I think, to a binary that Sue is going to make much use of, that between naturalness, something inherent at birth that develops in tandem with the span of the bamboo's life, and human intervention in the form of trying to make or even burdening the bamboo. The gestural allusion in this poem, in poem, in this essay, you can tell what I usually talk about, to the phrase inch as in the seat, the human seat of consciousness, points subtly to the way I think that the authority part of the essay is going to develop. It would have been incredibly hard for Sue's contemporary readers of this kind of material not to recognize in the vegetative metaphors here parallels in the writings of Confucianism and particularly Mencius. The confusion of foxgrass and millet, for instance, or the depletion of the fauna of Ox Mountain. What Steve calls the embryonic nature of the bamboo can be seen metaphorically as the equivalent of the so-called four beginnings. Ren, Yi, Zhi, and Li, however you wish to translate those. Um, the embryonic nature of humans that develops during the course of a person's life into a major Ren and makes one a full human being, one in a state of becoming Chang Ren, a fully formed person. This is Steve's allusion, I think, to the idea of Confucius. You know, you can let yourself go at 70 without overstepping anything. It's a process of learning, of mastery. It's something which becomes second nature through time as you practice it. That's all my pretty pictures. Now, in making such authoritative claims, the rhetoric is going to be governed, I think, here by the memory of the sage kings as a focus and locus of authority, either by direct citation, allusion, or a muted rhetorical vector that presumes the presence of the sage kings as a governing voice. This is surely signaled by the rhetorical phrase at the end of the passage about, um, which Steve didn't talk about, which is at the end of talking about losing this, it says, how can this only be about the bamboo? Now, there is something here I find really interesting. In addition to Zhuangzi, right, this kind of has a moment like Liu Zongyuan's essays on Zhongshu, Guotuo There is something to be learned here, not just about um, painting bamboo or, or taking care of a tree. There is the... There is a lesson to be taken away both about the need to grasp that fleeting moment of congruence between mind and hand, between creative impulse and execution, which is actually the way that I understand the Tu Qi Gu Luo section. It's not so much about hunting, but about having that moment when both things happen simultaneously. So 
But it also, like camel gua, gives you a lesson to carry away as part of your life. <coughs> now, as a thought process generated from viewing his painting of the recumbent bamboo, it places Wantong basically here in a lineage of authoritative truth as a theoretician and a teacher, and Steve talked about this. There, before Sue's eyes, Sue's eyes are the product itself, a bamboo that has indeed been executed at a particular moment of the Chengzhu, the bamboo in terms of becoming. It stands as a verification of one's public identity, which we shall see, I think, is not the same as his social identity. And yet we are left with this curious contradiction between the phrase xin shi qi ran, or bu ran, which is a humble admission of Su's own lack of innate ability, and his boast at the end of the, oops, at his boast in his uh, citation of his brother, which is something like, but as for me, well, how could I get only the meaning? I got the method. There is this incommensibility here, this contradiction, right in this particular essay. Now, as Steve has absolutely pinpointed, I think this is in some ways due to the, in a, the unintended effect that commercialism and competition for possession had on the lives of literati. Certainly in the urban world of Kaifeng and Hangzhou, and probably for smaller centers like Chengdu, Suzhou, and other cities, the power of money was being felt. The breakdown of sumptuary restrictions and, that we see in the capital journals of the two Song capitals demonstrates how the privileges of hierarchy that used to belong to the royal family and to the ethical meritocracy were freely violated. The rise of print culture, um, particularly of low-cost editions of the classics with commentaries, not very good ones, removed the necessity of the master-disciple relationship. Students could be autodidacts. The status of objects had changed significantly. When Sucher writes in his Chibifu about the inexhaustible treasury of things that the Zawuja gives you, it's already a nostalgic statement for something that you can now possess in a different way. So, People collected objects, they cataloged objects, they sold objects, they bought objects. Their status had changed considerably. They became part not of just an urban life, which I think where most of this was generated, but also a part of gentry life. It also created a boon for forgeries. So-called dilettantes, how shirja, among the gentry began to collect precious items because of their economic, social, and cultural value converting them into symbols of social and cultural pretension, and in the case of antiquities particularly, suppressing their moral or historical meaning in the process. I think all this is going on when these guys are beginning to write. The problem here, if we think about this, is this creates a kind of language that's based in an urban environment. The meanings of the profound ethical tradition of China, Confucianism, was also vulgarized. I would like you to look at this chart. 
This is a chart from the Shilin Guangji, which is a Song Dynasty, 13th century encyclopedia. It's only remarked one time in what I would call the authoritative tradition, and asked by Zhu Xi. Wait, yeah, it's bogus. That's the only thing that's said about it. Jushi really had a problem with this. But if you look at this, what I find totally interesting is we have here this array of the 70 years of a person's life over a bridge, right? It begins with, it begins with year one, goes through Liu Sui, Shu Sui, goes all the way up to 70. And this is the Jiangshu Shashu Zhi Chao, right? And Bai Ri Mo Xian Guo, Qing Huan Bu Zai Lai. So what you have here is the juxtaposition of Confucian morality with everyday ordinary sayings by people. We can see here the collapse of linguistic register. We can see that this is in print culture now. And Steve, for you, there's something special here. Um, where is it? So we can all, both of us now, go put our minds elsewhere. But as you can see by these little ditties, right? This is just, um, you know, well, I encourage you, sir, set your eyes on high because people don't reach 70 very long. Que pasa? And of course, we have the Nanshan Ga over here, Shogu Nanshan Ga. So, um, my point here is not to show you a nice picture that I drew, by the way, <laughs> but um, to show you that on the top here, we have all of these Confucian sayings, all of the dicta of Confucianism under Ren, you know, Bo Ji, Quan Nu, Quan Shu. Then you have Yi, Li, and Zhi. And if you look at Jir, at the end of Jir, it goes from a kind of Confucian concept of knowledge to keeping yourself out of trouble. And the bridge is not about a bridge through any kind of sagely repose or any kind of things. The top says, Gong Ming Fu Gui, right? If you grow the bridge right, you're going to make it, you're going to make it rich. Should you fall into the Ku Hai, down here is Pin Jian, but this is written in a text in a kind of demotic classical Chinese that's meant for an educated reader in this period of time. So I think this is the kind of pressure that we're beginning to see. Now, I submit that this kind of text, which is now freely available in cheap and not so cheap print editions, reified once and for all the distinction between Ya and Su in a way that manuscript culture would not have. What could have been politely put away at home now is available on the market through mechanical reproduction. So we now have another set of text. Now, the authoritative, the authoritative control of text is certainly destabilized by this culture, which begins to develop its own language. The language of everyday transactions in a crowded environment where standard colloquial Chinese what we have called both guanhua and gudian baihua, circulated 
along with the truly vernacular in the form of Fangyan, dialect, commercial argot, and other forms of specifically localized speech acts. And as importantly here, and as never cited by anybody I feel, is the development of the demonic form of simple classical language as a preferred medium of performance literature. Everybody talks about baihua when they talk about performance literature, but early performance literature is, in the main, written in this very simple, very easy to understand, wen yan wen, um, in the form of historical stories, Buddhist sermons, drum songs, string songs, and in the early emergence of non-elite print culture, print texts like the pinghua. But it's also found in things like in Shilanguangji for instructions for village teachers, and even mnemonic ditties for remembering dynasties and rulers, and things like contraindications in the intake of food and drink. So there is circulating now this other way of talking and thinking about the world. Now, whether or not Su would reproduce this, in his days in Kaifeng and Hangzhou, he would have known this culture well and been a part of it. Now, after Jushi, of course, the noose of authority tightens around the classical production. But it has always been there. The use of the cover of semasiological and philological commentary to guide readings of classical texts, to hash out arguments, to pass judgment on the right or wrong take on a text creates a centripetal force in which, while the physical text expands, semantically it collapses inward on itself, pushing towards a definite closure that would limit or even fix the reading outcomes and exclude any kind of interpretive experimentation until you get to somebody like Li Zhi. Now, this becomes then a highly selective activity, which is replicated, as Steve says, by the intellectual historian or the person who deals with the history of ideas. He remarks that we are all at times guilty of, quote, what scholars often do, which is to extract a passage, particularly a famous and memorable one, for a large argument substantiated by the citation of other passages. Now, this way of reading a text um, is exactly like the limiting process, not exactly, but it closely resembles the limiting process of the commentarial tradition. Texts are cherry-picked, decontextualized as, as quotations that are reemplaced within some kind of authoritative tradition. Like the commentary itself that generates the original text, there is a preconceived virtual truth, construed here not as a goal in the formation of text, but retrospectively from academic desire as a careful quest for an original authority, finding, of course, whatever it wants to find in the text through the process of inductive reading. So in this case, of course, it's only natural that the humorous exchange between Su and Wen would have been left out. It is irrelevant to the authoritative discourse on immediacy. How do we handle this? 
When we are trained as literary scholars, our approach to text is primarily atomistic, one that conceives of the text as interpretable, interpretable, does your tongue get thicker as you get older? I, I think so. <laughs> Through an analysis of the text's constituent elements, phonology, structure, imagery, metaphor, illusion, etc. This was a logical process, but the problem is that this kind of analysis tends toward the aesthetic. And once you have the aesthetic in place, it creates its own kind of closure within the text itself, sealing it off from its exterior context. While this kind of reading can help us resolve what might seem messy, it leaves the text free-floating, unattached to anything except the actual methodology of reading. For instance, if we were to look at structure, I think we can see that the painting figures in two ways. First, it is the product of Wentong, the painter and teacher the authoritative figure, something wrought from an interiority, Shangar Yoja, a gaze inward to fix on the moment when the, dynam the dynamism of the bamboo forming may be successfully transmitted to silk. Secondly, the painting is a reminder of Wentong, his friend, a person, and Steve talked beautifully about this who appears not as a teacher now, but as a friend in both intimate and personal terms. And, as I hope to persuade you now, as a member of a small group of like-minded friends who have established between themselves a mode of interaction that is reflected in the style of writing. When Su looks at this painting, he is seeing the traces of his old friend, I think that's exactly the word you used, the traces. I once read a wonderful, beautiful line by Sucher, which was about another painting, and I can never find this when I need it. But it's a painting of a river that has dropped, leaving its banks configured with roots and stones and all kinds of detritus on the store, on the, on the bank of the river. And I always think of this as Sucher's own spontaneity, his, his idea that his literature is like water gushing out, but that when you're gone, what is left are only these traces of the moment of production itself. And I think this is what he sees in one tone. This painting becomes a symbol of a time they had together. So it refers to something close and intimate. It is an exchange between the two and very particularly the funny poem about disgorging at the end, that we see what Sue has in his breast. It is his repartee. I think one tone once in something that you translate, I can't remember how, but he says, ah, Sue bianzi. Well, you can really, you know, you can really lay it out in terms of defining what is witty and not witty. Um, so it is in this repartee, well, well, where was I, I'm sorry. And it is in the exchange between the two, and particularly the very funny poem, we see what Sue has in his breast. It is his repartee, it is his ability to love and to tease at the same time. As one says of him, Sue zha bian, Sue zha bian zha bian yi, 
I'm taking my silk and I'm going to go home. Um, the thing that was missing was where Wentung tells, writes Su Dungpo and says, you know, I just told all the Shadaifu that our school of bamboo painting is now located where you are. So all the silk is going to go to you now. That's when Su Shui writes him back and says, well, not really, because we know why you've been doing all this bamboo. It's because you want to get rich. And so there is this kind of teasing banter between them. It's through this repartee that the warmth of the teasing banner is brought to the fore. And the moment then allows Su, in a sense, to extract Wen Tong, the man, from the vestiges in the painting and take him into his own breast through a remembered moment of, for lack of a better word, textual sociality. What has come out of the breast of one is taken back into the heart of the other through the medium of this painting. Sutra completely understands that there are two ways or more of talking about person. Um, the stylistic shift from the authoritative claim, which is always about ethical moments. If we think about the great biographies of the Han, they're always a particular ethic in action in a particular moment at a particular place. It's always this exemplum. And so there is this stricture inherent within the authoritative discourse about control. So it takes it away from this authoritative claim to a shared socioelect that expands the possibility of more fully remembering. I would like to point out one more thing in closing. Actually, two more things. One B to three, I don't know. I looked through the text written between Wentong Sushir and his brother Sucha. In a large number of these, particularly in poetry, the term xi, playful, joking, humorous, to make fun of, occurs in with undeniable frequency in the texts that go between them. Thus, I think we can see that this style of Sushir and what may seem unrelated is actually operates within a certain social space of camaraderie and like-mindedness. If we look at these styles now as belonging to a certain social space, the authoritative, the social space, the blurred, playful economic space of a changing world, we can see the authoritative, particularly with French culture, is pushed aside now as one, only one of several possibilities of speaking and writing. It allows Su Dungpo and his friends to escape the tyranny of the classical tradition and find a world in which expression and reading are not directed toward closure, but are centrifugal, moving ever outward in an expanding Archimedes spiral of possible expression and interpretation. I guess the second thing I would say, and I just thought about this, is this is not a process that is limited to classical. Um, if you think of the great Pingdian commentaries of the Ming, and particularly of Jinsheng Tan, you realize that this same authoritative imp impulse reasserts itself within other domains. And so at that point, I think there really is a commensurability between this kind of semi-classical, semi-baihua, and the actual classical tradition itself. But I want to thank you for making me really think about this essay. And um, 
It was a wonderful reading, and I'm sorry to have degraded it with these terrible comments. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Steve. Steve, Steve. Steve, Steve. I can see a, I can see a comedy routine coming. Well, Steve, what do you think about it? Well, I don't know, Steve. Let's sit down, Steve. I don't know if these are working. Oh, probably. I got About fifteen minutes for questions, comments, reflections. Admiration. <laughs> what, what were the various definitions of she? Of Steve? No, of she. Um, mocking was one of them. Joking, mocking, having fun, playing. Yes, all of those are option, open options. Oh, please. I'm Roger DeForge, historian of China. Um, I seem to recall that the title of today's talk, if I'm not mistaken, was something about how can something be unprecedented or be considered unprecedented in pre-modern China? Is that, is that right, or am I in the wrong panel? I think so. I mean, I hope that was implicit in the argument, <laughs> right, uh, right. which is that claims are circumscribed by tradition. And so you can follow a history of claims, but it doesn't get you as far as what's really happening. And I think what we're saying is you can say, this is, you know, the first part of the essay is precedented. It belongs to the age, but it also belongs to the past. That you know, the the first one. Took. The second part, the joke, the presumptions in the second part, are really, I think, clearly Northern Song. You know, and I can say, I think, with really confidence, there you don't see this earlier in China, and so. That's unprecedented in the Chinese context. It seems obvious to us now, but it was also obvious to them then. Is that fair enough? Um, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess I'm, I'm just interested in knowing more about how Su Dongbo saw himself. And I'm a historian, not a literary person, so, uh, but it, he, does, he, does, he does identify with certain figures out of the past. We know that Zhuangzi was important, obviously. Uh, we know that he was aware of Shiji. Uh, we know that he had many different uh, connections with the past. I'm just interested in knowing a little bit more about how you would place him. And I think considering him pre-modern is also a big question, right? I mean, what is modernity? Uh, maybe well, the, that's maybe always the, maybe the song is is modern. You know, we've talked about this. I a think lot. the the authority of a certain kind of classical discourse is still there. But it has diminished so and so greatly that we can talk that we were in a new world, really. Um, in terms of Xuxia's connection with the past, he has he lives in a double world. I think the essay shows it, and I think everything else in Xuxia shows it, Sudenport shows it. That he is able both to belong to the classical world, be able to work in it smooth, swim in it like water. But he also is thinking about issues that really are purely song issues. Does that make sense? And we usually, we, you know, as I said, I, I think, I don't know if you were here yesterday. I wasn't, no. Okay. 
there is, I was talking about the thing we always have when we talk about something in China, and you say, this is new. And then somebody in the audience says, no, it's not new. It was already in the Song Dynasty. <laughs> then somebody says, no, it was already in the Tang Dynasty. And then somebody says, it was already in the Six Dynasties in the Han. And then somebody says, oh, no, it was right there in the Shijing. Right, and so that there, and in some ways, there's tr some truth to this. It's not that nothing changes, but there's a lineage is so clear that you can see in certain kinds of utterances, the tracing backwards is very easy to do, and that's what I call a classical tradition. And the question is, what can you say that isn't trapped by that? I think people often believe that's all that China can do. You stay circumscribed by that. And I'm saying, no, in fact, if you start reading novels, you know that you can do a lot more things. And you don't know how they learned, you know, how they started doing that. And I'm suggesting that in a world of assumptions, you can do a narrative, you can tell a story, you can have an exchange of poems, and you can make certain assumptions, which in fact require that someone believes a certain thing. Even though you can't give it as a claim, you can make, make it there as an assumption. So it's a way of talking about where does that moment when they split apart, when the classical tradition really is, you have to, everything has to link up to the past, maybe it's in the beginning of print culture, right? Where you have the whole past is right in your front of you, not just memorized, but right there as citable. And the other thing is the, the, which you can find that people's scope of their knowledge is changing. I think of Tina Lou's working on gambling and probability. And you know, this is a really interesting question, but if you'd say, what do the Chinese think about when they're dealing with probability and, you know, things, it's really very, you know, you're really stuck in the EJing in certain ways, right? But if you get into the world talking about gambling, you're out of it. And you can't write easily about gambling in very high classical no. words are not right words. Okay. Thank you. No follow-up or no? No. Okay. Thank you. Gentleman in the middle there. Thank you very much for your talks. Uh, I'm Hong Shen from Zhejiang University in Hangzhou. Su Dongpo happened uh, to be magistrate in Hangzhou. Yeah. And we have a Su Causeway on West Lake, <laughs> and. Hangzhou is also famous for its, the variety of its uh, bamboos. I would like to uh, hear your comment uh, about Su Dongpo's poems on Hangzhou or West Lake or bamboos in Hangzhou. Thank you. Well, <laughs> he writes about that's a pretty general order, but yeah, of course he was saying, you know, this, this is his Suzhou, the Su Ti, and the Bai Ti. Are you know great moments for you know for Hangzhou, certainly. Um, I don't know. This really is you know there are the bamboo there, but bamboo are different in different places. We saw the bamboo of Yundang Valley, which is in Yangzhou, which is not our, not the Yangzhou now, but the other Yangzhou with the Shuizhuang. There is the bamboo on by the Wei River. There's bamboo. Is, so people are quite aware of the different types of local bamboo. They write about it. 
I'm not sure though if you should really writing about species when you're right doing a painting. I'm not sure. You can Actually, I, I think it's uh, interesting because I mean Sucher's poems, including the the marvelous one. How do I know the beauty of West Mountain? I'm oh, I'm writing it right now. <laughs> is um, what I find interesting and, and echoes this, if you think about it, is that his poems that he writes with Buddhist monks, but also stories about their their relationship and the stories of the kind of comic moves that are made between them, right? So it kind of it it it, it occurs there too. So I don't. Uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about it a great deal. It's he also starts writing Sun's Hangzhou. What's your comment on it? <laughs> Um, I wonder whether, uh, instead of thinking about this as a kind of bifurcation, it makes sense to um, conceptualize it as just a more capacious understanding of what the tradition is. Um, in other words, not not about uh, ya su distinction, but another understanding of ya that already has room in it for the su, or um, to put it in another way, if everybody else is talking about as spontaneous creation, the only way I can be even more spontaneous is to talk about how he's um, spitting out bamboo. It's, it's actually very similar to what you said yesterday about Zhuangzi, making the next move and thinking about how I can claim a higher ground. Um, or to maybe use another far-fetched example, think of Zha Bao Yu saying that um, Xu Xiangyun said to him, uh, is when the host is Ya, then all the guests comes. And Bao Yu said, oh, I don't understand, I'm the most I'm the most vulgar among them all. Right. And that's why they have to eat barbecue meats with get their hands getting all messy and so on, because other people are being Ya, or you know, enshrining a certain version of what being a cultured person is like. And the only way I can stake my own ground is to be that and also something else. So the, 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 it's not, in other words, there's no relinquishing of, of cultural authority or, or, or any implicit opposition at all, but just saying that I, I'm, I'm drawing a bigger circle. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. That's the, the, thing, the theory of the ultra-elite. That is, while in a um, sort of a community college, you may be reading a lot of what we would call the classics. Harvard students don't do that. They study Korea pop, or they study all sorts of things that are essentially not the classical tradition, but rather the so that's staking a ground beyond the standard ya. James? Uh, 
Great. Thank you very much, Steve. It's super interesting just thinking through the issue of spontaneity and the kind of trap you get caught in there. Um, and since the other Steve uh, brought up uh, the analogies or interactions with Buddhists, I mean, the first thing that obviously comes to mind is the rise of Yulu around this same time of the encounter dialogue between uh, masters and disciples where they engage in this same kind of repartee or even a what some call a kind of dharma battle where they're trying to one-up each other but um and they're in the same playing the same uh i think uh, game against the classics where they say they're bully wenzi right but yeah. then they're full of talk and they're full of yeah. citation and but they're also trying to one-up each other with uh some kind of clever repartee and something outlandish or um, but they're also aware of the problems of once you have those then they become canonized classics, and then you have to warn against mimicry. Um, oh. But uh, in the Buddhist case, the, I think it's pretty clear that the spontaneity that you're talking about, for them, the goal was an expression of their kind of awakened nature. That's the unprecedented. They have to show that they're not mimicking, that they somehow have got it. Uh, and so uh, taking That's that- That's certainly a problematic, how you show it is-, is, is and who's the arbiter of it, right? Yeah. The, and who's going to sanction it um, and not uh, just say it was foolish, right? Um, and I was struck by a number of the um, passages you put up uh, in addition to, well, humor is a great example that it, where it works because a, a joke that needs to be explained is a ruined joke, right? It just, yeah. you either get it spontaneously or it's horrible, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the other thing when there was uh, the number of times where study or shrey comes up uh, as a precursor, as a kind of preparation or laying the ground. So it's not anything goes, but there's some way of, of doing that spontaneity well, it seems. Um, well, that's the dream of the spontaneity. That right. is, if you, if you study hard enough and long enough, then it'll become spontaneous. Your moment Second will come, nature. yeah. Yeah. So if the Buddhists, if it's an idea of an expression of their kind of awakening or awakened mind, what is it for the literati or for these guys that are doing it uh, or where this issue is coming up in a completely different domain? Um, is it a comment on life or is it a comment on self-cultivation in there for them or is it is it just a game? I mean, uh, I'm just curious about, you You see this going on in these two domains right around the same time. And I think it's the fantasy of genius. Mm. You know, to them, if you're a genius, you do it just like that without premeditation or reflection, you know it all. It's Shunger Jirjir, but of course you can't say that because that's a sage. But this is other kind of Shunger Jirjir, Tensai. So they're just demonstrating that. But again, that's very stylized, very imitable. <laughs> once you do it, it can be done by somebody else. You wanna? I'm looking at you. I, uh, <laughs> I think in some cases it's wit. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to retire. <laughs> I think it's wit. Actually. Thank you. Um, Steve, we, we have talked um, a lot about the, um, um, the concept or the trope of a spontaneity today uh, through this uh, wonderful yeah. anecdotal essay. I wonder um, whether we can uh, go to the other side of the whole um, argument to think of uh, contingency. Is that kind of, a, um, say, the flip side of our celebration of uh, uh, a poet's a fantasy or a genius a fantasy, uh, everything comes 
out so smoothly and beautifully. And But on the other hand, what if a painter failed to do a good um, painting, even um, at the moment, a spur of, 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 of a, say, um, inspiration, but, or, I mean, the way you read the essay actually seems to point to the other side of um, the, um, the, the life of a literati in Song Dynasty. I mean, the whole essay, above all, has the note about uh, elegy, about the passage of time, about the inevitability of the downfall of a genius, the vicissitude of the fate so that seems to be the other side of the, other side. Of the whole argument. About but it only happens once he becomes aware yeah. of, you know, the, of the gaze, of the social gaze that says, you're a genius, paint me a spontaneous painting. That's sort of the fall. It's, I think, you know, if you're looking for spont... I'm, sometimes I've just been doing work with some. And, you know, they have these moments, they'll pick this line, and they'll say, ah, 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 that's the very essence. And you look at it and you say, that is, huh? And they say, well, it's just, you, I know, what, I can get into the dialogue, I know what happened if I was in the Song Dynasty. I would say, Yosha Mahal. And they would say, ah, if you don't understand it, you know, then you just can never get it, right? So there's this social forcing of everybody to agree on certain things. It's the emperor's new clothes, right? <laughs> if you don't understand it, you'll never get it. Maybe as a reason to end the question period. Um, the, the, uh, give me a spontaneous lecture, I said. And, and you delivered. It's an unfortunate thing that, that for all its benefits, PowerPoint kind of destroys the fantasy of genius. <laughs> or, or it shatters the fantasy of genius because we know, we know that they prepared. But still, yeah. uh, we've heard over the last two days three just remarkable, very, very different types of erudition, very different types of analysis. As I said, the PowerPoint gives the lie to their spontaneity, but that's okay. I never claimed to be spontaneous. <laughs> I'm a craftsman. But, I don't do but, spontaneous. Well, I was just going to say, isn't it, isn't it nice, though? Shall we, shall, we, uh, shall we just leave with the image of, of Wheelwright Bien or Wheelwright Pien chiseling away, chiseling away, chiseling away, and then producing his wonderful craft? Uh, thank you so much, Steve, both Steves, uh -huh. for uh, uh, just uh, uh, tremendously interesting and exciting presentations, and also to Michael, who, who couldn't be here today. Um, we, uh, I've, I've mentioned this to you before. Um, I hope that we will get a perm I hope that you will make a painting of this talk that we can publish. But even in its absence, uh, thank you so much to both of you, uh, and thank you to the audience for uh, for making this year's uh, 2018 Reichshauer lecture such a great success. Please join us now outside uh, for refreshments and further conversation. Thank you all, and especially to our participants. Thank you. Thank you.